take a moment to consider all the factors that impact your health. What comes to mind? Your diet, perhaps your lifestyle, like whether you exercise, drink, or smoke. Maybe you thought about your family history of diseases like cancer or diabetes. But health and well-being go beyond that. The field of public health is about thinking broader, thinking beyond the individual, about how our built environment affects us, how laws and policies impact us, and how the social forces influence our behavior and well-being. Each week, this podcast will discuss one topic from the wonderful world of public health to reveal these ubiquitous hidden forces and artifacts. One episode at a time, we will show how public health is all around us. Welcome to Everything is Public Health. Everything is Public Health. Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm Cass. I'm MJ. I'm really excited today, MJ, because the focus of today's episode is gun violence, Mm -hmm. which is what I do for my real job. (laughs) Versus what? (laughs) Versus this? (laughs) This is this is um, educational fun time. Yes, that's true. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So, you know, we, we try to keep it a little bit more light and less serious than than what I do on a day to day, but this might be a little heavier. It's okay. Than some of our other episodes. It's hopefully we can, so it's good. We can still keep it lighter than than my daily job. Anyway, so first off, full disclaimer: this is a huge topic, gun violence, and we are not going to tackle the entire problem today. This is just one episode. We'll definitely talk about more in the future. But I did want to start things off just talking a little bit about the topic, introducing people to some common myths or misperceptions, and sort of addressing some of those. There are tons of myths. I mean, I feel like gun violence is one of those topics that people talk about all the time without really knowing what they're talking about, like abortions. And there's so many topics like this where people will just like, if you ask them about their opinion, they'll just start talking. But you can tell very quickly whether they know what they're talking about or not. (laughs) But This can be a topic where opinions and beliefs and feelings can dictate some of the discussion. And so today, I'm going to start off, you always like to quiz me, you've quizzed me a few times now. And so I'm going to turn the tables on you and test your knowledge, go for it just to see sort of what you think about some of these common myths or some of these data points. So no cheating. I feel like I'm back in school. I can see you no googling anything on the side when I ask these questions. I'm already nervous. Okay. Okay. In so first off, I'm going to ask some questions about 2019 because that's the last year for which we have complete data for some of these data points. So don't think I'm... That's pretty good. That's pretty recent. Well, so it takes a long time for death certificate data to be processed. There are still states, this is a separate topic, but there are still states that don't digitally or electronically report their death certificate information. And so that delays... Well, they do it on paper? They don't submit their information electronically. And so it delays uh, processing a lot of this information. So now that it is more than halfway through 2021, we still don't have complete data on 2020. Wow. Anyway. In 2019, MJ, how many gun-related deaths were there in the United States? So all causes, all gun-related deaths. All gun-related deaths. I feel like I need an so how do you define gun deaths? Any death that is involving a firearm. So it doesn't have to be like homicide, suicide. It could, no, be-, it could be unintentional, could be homicide, suicide. Accidents counts? Well, in injury prevention, we call them unintentional injuries. But yes, they would count. Injuries are not accidents. Injuries occur in patterns that are predictable and preventable. That is very true. Um, I'm going to take a wild stab. I want to say 65,000. Wow. Okay. You're a bit of a pessimist. <laughs> So 39,707 gun-related deaths 
in 2019. Okay, I wasn't I wasn't ridiculously off. <laughs> no, only about, you know, 50% extra. But no, so a lot of folks don't know how many gun-related deaths there are. They either underestimate or overestimate because of what we hear in the media. All right, so of those just under 40,000 deaths, what is the leading cause of gun deaths? So what intent? Homicide, suicide, mass shootings. What do you think is the leading cause of gun death? Okay, so I know from school, and I hope this is correct, because if this is not, then I've just really embarrassed myself. If, if my memory serves me right, the leading cause of gun death is suicide. Correct. Okay, so good. about 60% of gun-related deaths are from suicide, which a lot of people don't know because that's not what's covered in the media. There's a lot of stigma around mental health and, and suicide. And the what gets coverage is mass shootings and, and homicide. So a lot of folks don't know that. And this is definitely true when I first heard that statistics. It's like, oh, I didn't know like that's such a big portion. You would expect it to be, I don't know, crime-related stuff. Yeah, and I was going to ask this question, but I'll just tell you because we're on the conversation. Over half of all suicide deaths in the U.S., a firearm is used. So over half of all suicide deaths in the U.S. are, are firearm-related, which is a huge number. You know, we're looking at 20,000 or so firearm suicides every year. And so it's a definitely a big problem. Yeah, and that that one doesn't surprise me as much because it's a very for America at least it's, it's not that hard to get a firearm, and it's not that hard to see that you know it, this is a little dark, but it's not that hard to see that pulling a trigger is like the quickest way to to die, right? So that one doesn't surprise me as much. But although it's kind of dark, yeah, firearms are exceptionally lethal. So on average, about 90% of suicide attempts with a firearm result in a fatality compared to 10% for the other mechanisms on average. And so this is sort of getting slightly off topic, but although women tend to attempt suicide more frequently than males, males choose more lethal mechanisms and have higher rates of uh, suicide as a result. But sort of bringing us back to the topic at hand for the moment. How many households in the U.S. have guns? Okay, so I know, so this statistic, I don't know if it's true or not because I heard it from like media sources, but I know that there are more guns than there are people in this country. There are more guns than people, but how many homes have them? I want to say slightly less than half, so I'm going to guess 40%. So you're not too far off. It's about a third. Okay. Um, around a third. Household level gun ownership has actually been declining over the last several decades, but gun ownership has been concentrating. So a very small proportion of U.S. adults own the vast majority of guns. So a survey back in 2015 found like less than 5% of U.S. adults own more than half of the guns. So it's not that lots and lots of homes have guns. Actually, people tend to overestimate how many people own guns, but um, underestimate how many guns people own. Oh, right. So people tend to think those guns are spread out among more people, but it's actually Very concentrated. fewer people owning a lot of guns. So the, the next myth that I want to talk about is about mental illness being a driver of most interpersonal violence. So just a, a definition. So interpersonal violence is violence that is directed toward another person, sort of between two people. And so when you listen to the media, you listen to elected officials talk about violence, usually in the context of mass shootings, but in other contexts as well, you hear a lot about mental health being a factor because if someone to do such a terrible deed, there must have been something wrong with them. 
And actually, that that matches with what we see in public sentiment. So national public opinion polls have found that a lot of adults think that mental illness is an important cause of gun violence. But if you look at the data, it's actually less than 10% of interpersonal violence being caused by people with a serious mental illness. People who do have a serious mental illness are far more likely to be victims of crime or to be injured or die from a self-harm incident. Yeah. And I think this goes back to, well, that's not pinned everything on the media, but, you know, this goes back to media coverage as well. Like we always hear about those very extreme cases where this one person did a terrible thing and he had, you know, some sort of struggle with his mental health. And then we report those cases way more often than the other way around. Well, and it's a, an effective strategy to divert away from other discussion topics. That's true. Yeah. So if you say, well, this person must have been mentally ill, that's the only reason they would have engaged in this thing. You don't have to talk about how that person gained access to a firearm. Oh, that's so smart. You don't have to talk about how they were able to buy one or keep one. You don't have to talk about how people failed to take firearms away from the person if they were actually um, at an elevated risk. So it's a convenient way, unfortunately, to divert away from some of the more constructive or substantive conversations about how we could prevent this. Uh, One of our colleagues at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, Beth McGinty, she's done a lot of work on the intersection between guns and mental health. And one of the things she always reflects on is like, even if you were to get perfect mental health treatment for everyone who needed it. And even if you were to ensure that everyone who needed treatment actually adhered to that treatment, Mm -hmm. we're looking at less than 10% prevention of interpersonal violence. You know, we're talking about 15, 16,000 people dying from gun violence every year in the US. You reduce 10% of that, which is important, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't work to achieve that, but you still have a 90% of the issue that's not addressed. Yeah, this is such a smart political tactic for them to like pivot away from the issue of gun access and gun ownership and gun control and stuff like that by just focusing on the mental health, which we know, or which, you know, now I've been educated uh, by you, like, uh, which we know that is not the case from a big data perspective. And it makes the problem feel less solvable. It makes it feel more like trying to intervene in individual thoughts and behaviors rather than a population level approach, which is, again, why we think about public health. What can we do at the population level to try to address this issue? All right. So the last one that I want to talk about is sort of tied to the myth about mental health, but it's one that I really want to address head on, which is that mass shootings occur totally at random. So there are some high profile mass shootings that can make it seem like there wasn't a connection between the perpetrator and the location or the victims. But actually, when you dig into the data, most mass shootings are directed at a specific group of people or a location with whom the perpetrator has a grievance. And actually, really important point, the majority of mass shootings actually involve the perpetrator's intimate partner or family members. So there's a strong domestic violence tie in mass shootings. Yeah, and this is something that... Again, it's a tactic that people use to kind of deflect the attention away from the central issue of gun violence. And they just said, oh, you know, this is we we couldn't have prevented this. Right. Like this is something that no one saw coming. That's usually not the case, actually. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The vast majority of individuals who commit a mass shooting have what we call leakage so they they leak information to someone in advance or social media sometimes. 
or on social media, sometimes with the hope that someone will keep them from doing the thing, sometimes to sort of brag and build up anticipation for the mass shooting. But it's very, very rare that something happens and no one had any idea that there was risk. Mm -hmm. But the framing that no one saw coming sort of leads to, again, that nihilistic viewpoint. Well, how could we possibly address mass shootings in this country if if they're so random and no one knows they're going to happen, but that's just not the case. Right. We've been talking about sort of heavier things today and gun violence can feel like an issue that is really complex and hard to like, how can we get anything done? Right. And the way it's discussed in the media and at the federal level, like we really are sometimes running up against a wall and it feels like there are no solutions that anyone agrees on. There's nothing that works to reduce gun violence, but As always, uh, when we wrap up our podcast, I really want to end with some solutions to give people hopefully a bit of optimism. Ooh, okay. Let's go. So there are policies that are what are referred to as extreme risk protection orders. So some people call them red flag laws, which we can have a when we do like an episode on suicide or mental health, we can have a whole conversation about the issues related to, to that nomenclature. But what these laws do is they allow law enforcement, a family member, or in some states, a healthcare provider to petition the court to temporarily separate someone from his or her guns during a time of crisis, but it also prevents them from purchasing more for the duration of the order. And so this functions just like a domestic violence restraining order, if folks are familiar with that. There is an argument made to the court. You have to prove to uh, some reasonable extent that there is elevated risk. It's a temporary separation. Sometimes they last six months, sometimes a year. So these policies have been associated with reductions in suicide, potential reductions in mass shootings. And these are also supported by more than 70% of US adults. Hello, post-recording MJ here. Unfortunately, we had to cut some of this for time, but this is such an important topic that we have decided to dedicate an entire episode to this intervention in the future. So stay tuned for that. So another possible solution at the policy level, requiring people who want to buy a gun to first get a license is associated with reductions in homicide, suicide, mass shootings, and straw purchasing. Do you know what straw purchasing is? Yes, but explain it. Okay, so that's when someone who is legally allowed to purchase a gun buys one on behalf of someone who can't purchase a gun and gives it to them. So there's a a form that you have to fill out at the federal level when you're completing a background check, which is called a 4473. And you have to say on that questionnaire that you are not buying this gun for someone else, that you're buying it for yourself. And so you're, you're violating federal law if you buy a gun and give it to somebody else who's prohibited. Yeah. But if you have these licensing laws in place, we actually see fewer of those straw purchases happening, which is an important source of guns for people who are too risky to have them. We don't have this already? Like there are certain states that don't have this? The vast majority of states don't require a license. So oh right now we've got about nine states in the U.S. who require prospective purchasers to get a license for every handgun like when they want to buy a handgun, regardless of from whom they buy it. So some states say, well, if you buy it from a licensed dealer, you don't need a license, but maybe if you buy it from a private seller. But so lots of loopholes. The most robust laws, those that require it for all sellers, um, no matter who you're buying the gun from, and for all handguns, you see these really important public safety benefits. Yeah. Oh my God. So wait, only nine states. So like more than 80% of the states don't have this across-the-board licensing requirement. 
Right. So some states do have a private sale background check law that fills the gap in federal policy, right? Because federal law only applies to licensed gun dealers. So private sellers are not required to conduct background checks or keep records unless their states pass an additional law. But we found that licensing as a way to ensure people comply with those private sale background check laws are really far more effective than the laws themselves. Right. And that makes sense. So- you might think, well, you know, this makes a lot of sense. You know, why why aren't we doing this? You know, a lot of folks push back and say requiring you to get a license is a violation of the Second Amendment and like nobody supports it. Right. But actually, our we do national public opinion polling every two years and licensing laws are supported by more than 70% of U.S. adults, including 60% of gun owners. Almost two thirds of gun owners say, yeah, you, I, I don't mind getting a license. And that makes sense. Right. Interestingly, if you ask gun owners who live in states that already have these laws, their support jumps to 75%. So three quarters of gun owners who like have presumably had some experience with these policies, with these systems are like, yeah, no big deal. Like I've gone through it here in Maryland. My husband's gone through it. It's like, it's, it's a little bit of an inconvenience, but it's not a big deal. And that, that makes total sense because licensing is, it's not an absurd concept like at all. Like we have driver's license. We have, I don't know, fishing license. We have hunting license. It's not an absurd concept. We have a marriage license. Yes, like we license a lot of things. Yeah. So some people say inevitably, mm. <laughs> Cass, if, if I told you you had to have a license to vote, your liberal heart would like crack in half and you would, you know, you'd pitch a hissy fit. And I'm like, right. Okay. But let's like, let's really lean into that comparison for a second because if i want to vote i have to register to vote yeah, correct the fact that i'm registered to vote is publicly available information and whether or not i vote is publicly available information so that is we don't have anything even remotely like that even in states with licensing whether or not i have a license to buy a gun that's not public information oh wow <laughs> the, whether or not i buy a gun is not public information and so it's a, yet another false analogy where people are trying to compare different things you know they also will say oh you don't need a license to exercise your first amendment rights no but if you want to have a, a public parade or a public demonstration you need to get a, a permit or a license for if that if you want to run a newspaper Right. And, you know, I mentioned marriage license, right? Like if you, you can't just willy nilly go get married, you have to get a license first. So there, it's not a, it's not a wholly unreasonable expectation. There's another myth that I hear all the time, which is, well, people are going to get guns however that they're going to get guns. If you have any sort of stuff, they're just going to get it illegally. So what would be your response to that? Yeah, that's a common one we hear. Criminals don't obey laws. So why do you think they would obey gun laws? Which first I'll say, we don't say that with any other topic. That's true. We don't say, oh, people still drink and drive. We should get rid of right. drinking and driving laws. Or, oh, people still kill each other. So we should just get rid of because they're just going to kill each other no matter. Like that that argument doesn't hold water with any other. Right. Doesn't make sense. Topic. Like, oh, you know, teenagers still get alcohol. So, you know, why do we have minimum age laws for alcohol? Right. It just it sounds silly when you apply it to any other topic. The other thing I'll say, it's actually not true. When you have robust laws in place, you constrain the sources of guns available in an underground market. And it makes so then people have to uh, engage in interstate gun trafficking to bring guns in from other states, which when you raise that point, people then say, well, that's against the law. People don't do that. People people can't do that. That's that's and I'm like, but you just told me the criminals don't obey laws. So like how you can't have it both ways. Right. Um, but we've done uh, several projects looking at this. So straw purchasing where people buy guns on behalf of other people. 
robust laws like licensing and and strong dealer accountability laws uh, at the state level can reduce straw purchasing, which can divert guns into an underground market. Private sale background checks can make it harder for guns to go across state lines. But licensing is a really important piece. We actually did a survey of criminal justice system involved men in Baltimore asking about Maryland's licensing law, which went into place in 2013. And so first we did some data analysis looking at crime guns, and we saw substantial reductions in crime guns originating within the state. So after the law went into place, far more of our guns that had sort of indicators of diversion were coming from other states. And then when we asked the the men what their perceptions were, they said 40% of them said it was harder to get a gun. And uh, they specifically said, well, now you need a license and it's hard to find someone who will buy a gun for you anymore. So when in Maryland, the law went into place, it became a lot harder to get guns that came from Maryland. And so you talk with law enforcement in the state, guns are coming from West Virginia, Virginia, Tennessee, you know, coming up the I-95 corridor. And so, you know, the laws do work actually to make it harder. Yes, we do have a lot of guns in the U.S., but gun ownership tends to be highly concentrated. So it's, you know, you have a a few people who own a lot of guns. And so if you can crack down on people who are engaging in irresponsible or unsafe sales practices, you can actually have an impact. And I think, you know, my take is at the end of the day, humans are fundamentally lazy creatures. And the more (laughs) barriers you put in place, the less people do things. That's just how it is. Like if you have to walk 10 miles to go to Starbucks, you're probably not going to go to Starbucks, right? (laughs) That's kind of, I mean, that's always my take. It's not about an impenetrable barrier. It's just like, well, let's just set up these barriers. That's very practical and very down to earth. It's funny that you raised that point because that's one of the core principles of injury prevention. Yeah, just make it harder to do the unsafe things. If you want people to do the safe thing, it has to be the easiest thing. If it's not the easiest thing, people are not going to do it. Yeah, make the good things easy and make the bad things hard. And then people will naturally shift according to their aptitudes. Again, this was a huge topic. It was a heavier topic than we've, I think, done previously. Not as many opportunities for humorous injection, but uh, just wanted to give an introduction to the topic. Again, we'll come back to this, I'm sure, many times over the course of the podcast. So a couple of years ago, some colleagues of mine and myself developed a free online course on Coursera, all about gun violence. It's called Reducing Gun Violence in America, Evidence for Change. You can find it on Coursera.org. So if you're interested in learning more about the topic, we've got national experts from all over the country talking about all sorts of different topics, including policy, self-defensive gun use, uh, how physicians and clinicians can have a hand in helping to better counsel patients and talk to patients about guns. So it's a really comprehensive topic. We talk about safe storage. Anyway, there's a whole, a whole bunch of stuff. So check it out. It's totally free and available online. And you'll find a link for that in the episode description below. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word so more people can learn about all things public health and how gun violence is public health. Send us questions and comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Also reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at everythingisph and on Instagram at everythingispublichealth. 
You can also find me on Twitter at Dr. Krifasi. Please also give us a rating and review on wherever you listen to your podcast. It does help us immensely. Don't forget to like, share, and comment as well. If you want to support the podcast directly, we have a Patreon page, and you can find the link in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health.